Welcome to my den and to this very special part two of our dual series on what school could be. If you haven't listened to part one, I'd highly suggest that you go check that out before pressing play again on this episode. Because in the last episode, Ted Dintersmith, my guest, and I discussed what school and education currently look like in America, what the challenges are that our students are experiencing, and, uh, and, and in today's episode, we're about to dive into some of the solutions, what school could look, look like in the future. If you aren't familiar with Ted Dintersmith, then I will give a brief introduction to him. Ted is a pretty amazing human. He was appointed in 2012 by the Obama administration to represent the U.S. at the United Nations General Assembly, and he focused on education and youth entrepreneurship there. But his background is as a venture capitalist. He was a co-founder of a venture capital firm and the top performing venture capitalist of 1995 and 96. But really, and I hope you'll see this come through today, his passion is for education. And in fact, it's even gone to the extent where when he was writing his book, What School Could Be?, He actually traveled to all 50 states, visiting some 200 schools to find the most innovative classrooms and see what was working and what was not. He, in his book, highlighted this journey, um, the common elements of the powerful learning experiences that he observed. And really, to this day, this was he wrote the book back in 2015, and to this day, those same principles have caused Ted to look outside the school system for solutions to our education crises. And we'll talk about that today. If you enjoy this episode, I'd highly suggest you go check out his book, What School Could Be. And also, if you've got Netflix, go check out the documentary that he co-produced and that ended up winning multiple awards at Sundance and other film festivals. It's called Most Likely to Succeed. This is a fascinating, legendary dialogue today, and I'm excited you get to tune in to a conversation with a foremost thought leader on how to create an education system that thrives for our kids and grandkids and the kids who come beyond us. Let's equip our native digital students with native digital ways of thinking and being educated instead of native analog ones. I'm excited to introduce Ted to you again for the second time. And let me know, I, I, I want to hear from you guys on what this conversation um, is doing in your lives, how it's impacting you. If you ever want to shoot me an email and and just have a conversation about what the future looks like, I welcome that dialogue. My email is hannah at hannahgwilliams.com. This show is brought to you by Analog Academy, where we teach you to become a top 1% employer of native digitals. So if you're a a business leader, a talent or HR executive, or a startup founder, and you want to recruit the best and brightest Gen Z talent, I encourage you to check out our free masterclass. We hold it two times a month, the second and fourth Thursdays. You can register at hannahgwilliams.com forward slash get that shit. 
And now hang on to your living room seats or your time machines if you're cool like that. And join me in my living room with the amazing Ted Dindersmith. You're listening to Native Digital, Native Analog, the show where we unpack the collisions and commonalities between my generation and yours. I believe that if you don't have a Native Digital on your board of directors, your leadership team, or at least one you pay to pester you like a fly in your ear, your business won't survive. Let's change that today. This is what we're doing to kids. We're telling them, take on whatever meaningless hoop is put in front of you, outcompete your classmates, push yourself to do well in something you see no point to, so that you have a slightly better chance of getting into a very expensive college where you'll learn very little and hope that career services can place you in a job you don't hate. That's the message, right? And what's missing in this, and, and I... It's one of the reasons I'm such a fan of you is when I interview young adults, I love to ask the question, if there were no job available to apply for, what's a career path you could create for yourself? And and invariably, that question is reacted to with a blank stare. It's almost like, what? That's an option? Nobody told me that. I mean... I could create my own job? No. I mean, there, there was no course on that. I mean, what would I have to major in to create my own job? You know, and it's like, I call it the low-hanging orchard. This whole potential for bright, creative, innovative five- and six-year-olds to become bright, creative, innovative 15-year-olds who are developing proficiencies that matter and realize I can plot my own path. I don't need to apply for a low-level job with an accounting firm I'll hate, or I don't need to spend seven years in higher ed to get a law degree only to figure out three months after I start work that I hate being a lawyer, or I don't need to spend 10 years in a process to be a radiologist only to find out that AI does it better. Why don't I create something I enjoy, run with it, confident that when that no longer is my preferred path, I can create something else? And, and I think that is not something possible for a kid here and there. I think that's something widely possible. And I think the big issue is helping young adults realize it and getting their parents off their back. Getting their parents off their back. Oh my gosh. A parent just said that. Ted, you're a parent. Wait, you said you have two kids, right? Yeah. Oh my gosh. I'm... It's so refreshing to hear someone say that because I, that's what I observe with all my peers is they have these entrepreneurial ideas. They have this creativity. I mean, okay, you're going to laugh. Two things. (laughs) My first resume at the bottom of my resume, I had the number of words I could type per minute. (laughs) That's a skill set because no one had told me that mechanical skills weren't necessary, but fast, I guess, rewind a few years before then, my friends and I, we grew up in this community of other homeschooled kids. We had a, a mix of charter school, public school, private and homeschool. And in the summer afternoons, we would go out 
And our parents did really push us to not just play video games and whatnot. They pushed us outside. I'm very grateful for that. And because I was homeschooled and we had other students in, say, middle school and early high school who weren't as focused on test prep, we were free to explore and be creative. And so we would go outside in the summer months and we actually built our own form of, we called it Jamestown. It was these little houses, we like little huts that we built out of wood. We would cut down and build teepees. And I remember we developed our own currency. Like we had a, a circulating currency. We had one person who would dye cloth and we had another person who would cook food on the fire. And we were like 10, 11 years old. And then suddenly high school hit all the creativity that we had in Jamestown was zapped. We went and studied and burrowed in our rooms and crammed for SATs and ACTs. And it just, in my mind, just from my own experience, and I was outside the system for the majority of my high school uh, or majority of my grade school years, at least. I was outside the system and still got sucked into this idea that my whole, the whole reason for high school was to get good scores so I could go to a good college. And I watched that with all my peers. It was parent-driven, not child-driven, not student-driven, parent-driven, this idea of forget all of those creative things, the equivalent of their Jamestowns, forget that, leave it behind. You're not gonna use that as an adult. Go cram for an SAT, get into a great college, but then what happens after college? They're all now in jobs where their bosses are telling them, please be creative, think outside the box, go innovate something. We want, we, we want to create entrepreneurs in our company. And, and just that shift from, well, if I could have just cut out years, you know, age 17 to age 22, though, if I could cut out those five years of my life, I would probably have a better skill set to be at work now if I could take my 15-year-old self and insert it into corporate and miss all of the years in between where I was cramming for exams. I, I just, I don't, so, so anyway, to reinforce what you were saying about getting parents off, off of a child's back and helping them explore those innovative, creative, entrepreneurial ideas seems not only healthier for society, it seems like a no-brainer. And yet, from what you're telling me, school boards, parents, you know, law, everything is created to fight that idea. Yeah, everything. And there's so many points to bring up in that con in the context of, of your great observations there. I, I, I'd say, you know, parents are risk averse. I mean, as a parent, you, you want good outcomes for your kid. You desperately want good outcomes for your kid. And Going back, you know, we were talking about what's different and what's the same from when I was in school. You know, one thing that's glaringly different. So I went to a state college in Virginia. My senior year, 1974, the full year's tuition was 250 bucks. Not per unit, not per course, not per semester, per year. The year's tuition was 250 bucks. I mean, I worked, I had a summer job. And sometimes during college, I worked during the school year. I was basically able to pay for it all myself. And, and this was William & Mary, you know, a reasonably good college. You know, now it's just prohibitively expensive. And, and yet we continue to say, you know, that 
every kid needs to do that. You know, like, and, and it's bragging rights at cocktail parties. And it's one of the things I take great issue with as I visit school. It's a high school thing. But, you know, there will, and this was, you know, who piled on it the most? You know, Barack and Michelle Obama. You know, college signing day, celebrate acceptance letters. This is so great. This kid got into Joe Bag of Donuts University and is going to spend $75,000 and drop out with nothing to show for it. Isn't that wonderful? And I say, do you celebrate the kid that got the great entry-level job at the local car repair shop or the kid that enlisted in the military? Oh, no. Well, we should do that. But, you know, but the, the halls are filled with college pennants and the halls are filled with posters that say you two can do it. And it's really... I think a form of brainwashing. I mean, it's right from the marketing arm of De Beers Diamonds, right? You know, like, you know, the more you spend on college, the better prepared you are, which is completely ludicrous. And so that difference is enormous. And, you know, the fact is that, you know, colleges are the least innovative institutions in the world, right? You know, like, I think people saw that. And I want to talk a little bit about insights from the COVID experience. But, I think people realize, wait a minute, when I'm not there on campus having fun, going to frat parties or whatever, I never went to a frat party, going to football games, I never went to a football game, you know, so I missed a lot of that stuff. I was studying. You missed the whole college experience. I know, I know. <laughs> but, you know, when you realize, my gosh, I can take a course online for free with somebody better than the person trying to figure this out, you know, you know, like you, people suddenly are realizing, wait a minute. Why am I spending so much money? There's a social aspect. It's fun. But I mean, on the scale of is college an amazing education experience where paying that tuition level is so much better than what you could do otherwise versus is college a glorified four-year, incredibly expensive version of summer camp? I'm in the category of summer camp. And when people push back on me, I say to them, read the book Academically Adrift. It's the only serious research that's been done to determine whether college kids are really learning anything. And the answer is shockingly dismal. You know, very little is actually learned during those four years. Is it a sorting mechanism? Is it a, is it a you know, credentialing thing? Is it a, you know, like, oh, you know, you got into X, you must be really smart, so we'll build on that resume and then convince other people to deal with our business. You know, so Goldman Sachs wants to hire everybody from HYP or whatever, Harvard, Yale, Princeton. I don't know what just kind of goes on and on. But the reality is that, that it's so easy now to learn whatever you want to learn on your own. It begs the question of why spend 75 to 300 K for a degree when most of the courses you're taking aren't going to be that well taught, where you're going to be filled with all these prerequisites and distribution requirements that you kind of hold your nose and get through. And I think people are starting to be a bit more questioning about that. that that's the first thing. The other point I want to get at, right, is, and this is true K through 16 or K through PhD or whatever is. I think it's important for us to start recognizing the enormous price we pay when we put priority on what students should learn over whether they're learning and, and your homeschooling experience and our kids homeschooled maybe three years out of their first eight years. So we had not a hundred percent, but we had reasonably good. And once you realize kids are curious, you're like, what do you want to learn? If you, how often does that happen in formal education settings? What do you want to learn? You know, when you turn it around and say, what do you want to learn? Kids go deep with that. 
And I think because we don't do that, because it's a lost art, when COVID hit, learning ground to a halt, right? Because as dismal as it was in school in person, at least you had the clubs and the sports teams and the social things. Now you're doing the dismal at home on Zoom with somebody boring talking at you over a computer screen. It's like, oh, God, I don't want to do this. And most people didn't do it, right? And, and that difference between are you learning versus here's what you have to learn is night and day. And, and, and I would say that not only is the what do you want to learn more engaging, more personal, more interesting, it's actually the skill you need as an adult, right? I mean, figuring out, I'm curious about X. Now I'm going to figure out my own way to learn a lot about X. That's what everybody, you know, that's what the adult world values. The, no job, last time I checked, no job hands somebody a textbook and says, here's what I need you to do. Read our textbook on a better customer experience. Answer these multiple choice questions. And if you do that well, we're going to give you a raise. <laughs> you know, like that's not the world. The world is, hey, our customer experience, you know, process is terrible. We're getting terrible feedback. What should we do better? Figure it out. And here's what's interesting, right, is when I interview employers who hire these kids from top colleges, I say, what are you getting? And it's like, I don't know what they were doing to these kids. And the phrase I hear a lot is the go fetch a dog biscuit hire. Tell me what to tell me what dog biscuit to fetch. I'll go fetch it, bring it back, wag my tail and hope you'll pat my head. And, and that's not the way the world works. People want to hire someone where they can say, we are sucking wind with customer, you know, experience ratings. What are we doing wrong and how do we fix it? Go. You know, that, that, that's who you want in your, in your organization. You don't want somebody that says, tell me what I, okay, fine, fine. What do I do first? What's my step one? What's step two? What's step three? That's no problem. Outline it for me. Yeah, yeah. Tell me. <laughs> one to 10. Yeah. What will make you happy? And, you know, and I know about that, you know, it's interesting, but, but, you know, my business background, I've spent years, decades in venture capital and which was great because I, I dealt with the most entrepreneurial people you can imagine. And what was so fantastic is that they were not the go fetch a dog biscuit people. I mean, this was the exact opposite, right? These are the ones who just saw, visualized a world that could be better and then drew on whatever resources and personal talent and dedication and creative insights and willingness to, to dive into ambiguity and try things and know they'll fail only because you're going to learn from it and get better. And it's like, okay, great. That's what we want in adults going forward. Those are the jobs of the future. And why the hell isn't that part and parcel of school? Because it's actually not only not featured, prioritized in school, it's wailed on by school. You know, the very things that will help you do well in the 21st century economy in a world that's increasingly innovative, in a world where more and more of the jobs are going to be jobs you create for yourself, the very skills and mindsets you need are diminished in the process of school. And that is a disconnect that breaks my heart. Breaks mine too. So thank you for that. And I, I want to ask you the big scary question here because I want, I want to jump a little bit to solutions and figuring out what school could be and what, what could the future look like. So here's the big scary question. If test scores and if test prep and if college the way it is is not the answer, even though 
are, you know, you, you've even bring this up in the book, our real estate districts or our real estate prices rely on the, the, the rating of the school in certain areas, right? We have an entire system built on test prep scores and these metrics and this data. So if that is not the answer, what is? How do we better prepare our students? Well, you know, I, I did this, the book, What School Could Be, and, and I'll give some context for, for people listening. Um, you know, I, I spent an entire school year, so it was almost 11 full months, going to school after school after school, a couple hundred in total, every single state. And because I self-funded it, I, I didn't go where people would pay speaking fees. I went where I wanted to go. So I spent a third of my time in rural. I was on, you know, a Native American reservation in South Dakota. I was in Western tribal villages in the outermost reaches of Alaska. I was in inner city. I was where the kids are, not where the fees are. And I look for things that I consider to be bright spots, things where students were engaged, where when I'd interview them, they knew what they were learning. It had real purpose to it. They could talk about it with a degree of specificity and exactness that was impressive, where teachers had kind of that bounce in their step. And I read a book about that. And I tried to pick a great example from each state and sort of lay out an entire picture of, of education. And you know, I, I say to people, it may not be the best book you ever read, but it's the best book I'll ever write. And, uh, but it's done really well. I, I think it's, it's sold more than any other education book this century. So that's been decent. But I went back, you know, and looked at where, where was that happening? And it was this really interesting confluence of teachers trusted to create great learning challenges. Nobody was telling them, here's what you have to do. They were coming up with something that they thought would engage their kids and help their kids develop important skills. And almost all of them were in the concept, context of an interesting hireable proficiency. So I can just run through a few examples. Third, fourth, and fifth graders in poor area of West Virginia who were the IT help desk that knew the ins and outs of learning applications. It was really amazing. Kids in Fargo, North Dakota, do, documenting the history of the iconic buildings of Fargo, creating great videos, putting them on a website, designing great signs with QR codes, doing a public exhibition. Kids in Albuquerque, New Mexico, you know, last chance kids, you know, dropped out of, you know, were thrown out of the normal high school into an alternative high school, saw no point in school, were challenged by the local soccer team to create social media campaigns to drive a younger fan base to the soccer games. They were all over that. You know, a, a, a girl in Montpelier, Vermont, who was never going to finish high school because she couldn't pass the algebra exam. I, I gave her some consolation in saying, you, no one uses it, so don't feel so bad about that. <clears throat> but pitched her school on dumping third try to fail algebra and, ex, and instead learn how to develop websites. And she was very artistic. So suddenly you have a, a young woman who goes from high school dropout with no path forward, no family support, just in a world of hurt, to great artistic skills, website design skills, can, you know, do website design for customers all around the world. And I, I looked at these, I said, like, whoa, what, what is the overall pattern here? And, and this gets where, where there's really great alignment with your work. And, and I think you do a brilliant job of shining light on these contrasts. But, but if native digitals can master native digital skills perhaps team up with other native digitals who are gravitating more toward traditional skills and are encouraged and motivated 
and in some ways inspired to recognize they can create their own career path. Do we then have a great answer to if I blow off obsolete, same old, same old and do something different? Will this cost me my chance at a good job or will this actually be a better path to a good job? Will this cost me any chance of being a contributing citizen or will this help me be an engaged citizen? Will this lead to a happier, more purposeful life? And I think that tangibility of saying, so, so, so what if you didn't do, so what if you got some bad grades? So what if you didn't take 15 AP courses? So what if you got a stack of college rejection letters? So what if you didn't even go to college? You're off and running. You created your own career path. You're doing something really entrepreneurial and exciting. And if and when you need to pivot and do something slightly or even radically different, you now know how to do that. And, and that's one of the things that's the baffle, right, is that we, everybody sort of recognized. It's like said by road at this point. Oh, these kids are going to have 14 different jobs and eight different careers over the course of their li adult lifetimes. Well, then, you know, why don't we bake that into the essence of school? Like, why not start creating a great career path at age 12? Like, you know, like, I, I, I'll tell you one other story. I love this story. It's true, you know, but, but um, I can't reveal my sources, but I'll try to be a little bit vague, but not that vague. So a very prominent Ivy League college was gearing up for a major capital campaign. And the people involved had the good idea I think, of looking at what they call their transformational donors. So these are people that had given college age $25 million or more. And they said, you know, it would be interesting to go back and look at their application and see what they had in common. And they weren't particularly at the top of the charts on test scores or grades. You know, there, there were a bunch of things that are the standard measures of academia where they were kind of in the middle of the pack or even at the low end. Every single transformational donor had started their own business in high school. Now, they did not want to publish that result because then every type A parent would be making their kids start a business in high school because this will be the key for you to get into Harvard and then down the road be able to give $25 million to Harvard or more. But I mean, it's like, why don't we start looking at the things that actually transform lives? Like, like that's not an outlier. Is there any real surprise there? that the people that go on and do amazing things in their career actually early on started doing amazing, interesting things. The people that thought boldly and innovatively that were, had the wherewithal to dive into ambiguity as a 13 or 14 year old, would end up being a more purposeful, more successful in many ways, not just financially adult. I think we know that. We know that in our bones, right? And I think it really gets to what's incumbent on all of us. And it's what's driven my life with, you know, some degree of satisfaction, but a lot of exasperation is we know what matters and we just sit around and don't do anything about it. You know, we, we just take same old, same old obsolete. We keep ruining kids' childhoods. We keep erasing from them the skills and mindsets they need. We keep pushing them to excel on stuff that's increasingly irrelevant. And nobody views it as a crisis. Nobody views it as tragic. Nobody views it as unacceptable. And I always say, like, when, when I talk to audiences, it's particularly at the school level, I say, these are your kids. Why am I the angriest person in the room? You know, you should be angrier about it than I am, because this is going to affect your kids. When I talk to students, I shouldn't be angrier about this than you are. This is your future. 
I mean, if somebody's purposely impeding your ability to create a great life, why don't you just say, damn, I'm not taking that. I'm going to fight back against it. Yes. <laughs> Fuck that system. Let's, yeah. you know, let's I mean, create really, something different. Yeah. It's like if somebody said, we need you to run the Boston Marathon and our good idea is we're going to put 25 pound concrete weights on each of your ankle, go, and you, you couldn't even get out of the starting line. Should you keep trying to run or should you say, what the hell? I mean, you, you, you want me to run a marathon? Get rid of the concrete blocks. You know, like, let, let me run a marathon I want to run, right? And, and I think that's just it. I mean, we should be preparing kids to create their own life's journey, not ramming them through mindless hoops that some bureaucrat in the state capitol or in Washington, D.C. or in Princeton, New Jersey College Board has decided this is what they should do. Because they don't remember it anyway. You know, it's like it's one thing if they had data that said they actually remember it. But two thirds of Americans can't name the three branches of government. I mean, you know, like, like every time somebody does one of these things where you look at the most obvious basic things that you would think everybody who went through 12, 14, 16, 20 years of school would remember, they don't. You know, so what's the point? Like, and why do we settle for this? I mean, come on. I want to make sure I capture what you said a second ago about just painting this future because this is so interesting and so crucial. So what I heard you say is if you took students, high schoolers, not college students, if you took high schoolers or even middle schoolers who had digital economy skills, so you gave some examples like web design, you know, social media, driving traffic to sports events at school, et cetera, the projects that kids are actually interested in. And then you had students who gravitated toward traditional economy skills. So I'm assuming you mean things like culinary, or maybe they want to go into uh, a skilled trade, carpentry, plumbing, et cetera. If you, if you pair those people together, those students who have digital economy and traditional economy skills, pair them together, then have them do work collaboratively on projects that that could eventually replace college? Is that, is that what you were describing? I want to be, make sure I understand. Be, be better than college, right? Be better than college. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's not fantastical. It's not like wildly speculative. I mean, this is so doggone doable and, it, and it's happening here and there. But I, one of the things I find so interesting, I mean, and I have a bunch of examples, but I'll pick a couple. One is, um, you know, I was interviewing some educators in rural Pennsylvania, and we were just kind of shooting the breeze. You know, I just sort of like, tell me what's on your mind. What are the issues, challenges, anything, you know, I might have a perspective on that would be useful. I'm happy to share. And they, were, they started talking about these two kids that were not going to get their high school degree because they couldn't stand school. And they had become obsessed with woodworking, but not just any old woodworking, but they were totally locked in and obsessed on beautiful front doors. And, and the, the question they had for me is, how do we get them off of this? And I said, do not get them off of this. I mean, do not. And they said, but you know, like we're in rural, very rural Pennsylvania. I mean, these doors are going to cost hundreds of dollars, maybe more. And there's really no market for those doors where we live. And I said, well, here's what we do, right? Get another couple of classmates to get good at digital media skills. And then they start a company called, you know, gorgeousfrontdoors.com, you know, whatever. I mean, you know, and they use social media to reach people and they figure out, you know, it's like, 
and like that little cluster, which could start with four students, two with traditional economy skills, two with digital economy skills, could turn into not Facebook, not Google, not tens of thousands of employees, but could it end up hundreds of employees? Yeah. Could it be an economic driver for a community hanging on by its fingernails? Yeah. You know, and it's just like that, an economy that's becoming incredibly niche where kids with purely digital skills or kids with combining, you know, an individual or a set of set of young adults or young adults working with older adults, but to figure out, okay, we all got laid off, you know, all the older adults got laid off from a, a manufacturing plant, but they're good at custom tooling. If they had the wherewithal to reach a global market with their skills and could begin to get a sense of where the market demand was and had some people probably native digitals helping them with the digital media strategy, they could make a go of it. Whereas today, they're just like stranded in a community that's drying up. And, you know, as I said, it's not, this isn't just like this wild put somebody on Mars someday sort of thing. I mean, it's, it's absolutely happening, you know, here and there. Could it happen largely? I'll give you a different example. You know, and, and I'll often... I love to talk to young adults who get good at things. And then I ask them, what are you going to do this summer? And they never connect the dots. You know, so I was at a school where they were, these kids were so proud of them. They had done a fundraising event. They'd had great food for it. They lined up a band. They did a website. They did, uh, you know, social media campaign. They raised a lot of money for a cause. I mean, you know, so it was really great. So what are you going to do this summer? you know, well, SAT test prep or mowing lawns or babysitting or whatever. I said, what, why don't you form your own event planning and management company? Like you, if you could do it for this fundraiser, there are a lot of organizations that could that need to raise money or people that are having a big, you know, golden anniversary party for their grandparent. I don't know what, you know, like there are lots of people out there that could use the expertise you guys have. Why don't you, why don't you give that a try? And, and oftentimes it's very disappointing. It's like, oh, I but it might not work or, you know, that sounds hard or that sounds – and I just sort of lay that at the foot of school, right? It's, it's not here's what you need to do to get an A. It's you're good at some things. Dive in and figure it out. And there's none of that diving in and figure it out in school. And, and there's all of the here's your next step, do it. And, and when you've been through 12, 14, 16 years of here's your next step, do it, you need a little – jolt to sort of realize, wait a minute, nobody's going to hire me for doing the next step. And wouldn't it be fun? To, I mean, I just talk about, I hope it comes across as the tone of my voice, the idea of, of forming your own event management company as a 15 year old. I mean, isn't that, that seems like a really great thing to do, you know, do it for the summer, do it part-time during the school year. You know, and in my book, I, I use the example, I think I used it for the social media campaign in New Mexico, where I made the point, is if even if you do want to go to college, I think it, it takes it re- dramatically reduces the pressure on the college path. It makes you feel a lot less nervous, or you know, feel lowers the angst level over which college you go to. But if you go to you're in North Carolina, if you go to a state college and there's some great state colleges in North Carolina, if you can make twenty five bucks an hour during the summer full time, ten hours a week during the school year. You can pay tuition, room, and board for UNC. Yeah, you don't need a scholarship, right? And yet, 
these philanthropists who generally I think are completely oblivious to what makes sense will donate billions of dollars to college scholarships and zero dollars to upping the earning power of teenagers. <laughs> the best possible source of scholarship money is the money you can make doing a job part-time you really enjoy instead of scooping beans into burritos for the rich kids at your school. No kidding. Well, and, and in fact, when you said a second ago that the philanthropist giving these, you know, $25 million to Harvard where high school dropout or, you know, high school entrepreneurs, why are they giving that money to Harvard instead of to something that actually makes a difference? Because what I hear you saying, Ted, which is mind blowing, everybody in America needs to, to hear this, is that the solution is not making college or high school better. That's not the only solution. The solution is creating a path that is different. That is, that completely circumvents this idea that college is the only direction. I, I mean, if I, if I could think through kind of summarizing our conversation, that's what I'm learning is if, if the inputs we've had for years since, since 1970, since you were in high school are the same, but the expectations of our society and work and what it takes to be a successful adult in America have shifted so drastically then why are we still pushing for those same institutions that are so bureaucratic? There's so much red tape. Why, why are we pushing for those institutions to change instead of giving students a mechanism to never have to go through them? Yeah. And, it, you know, it's, it's, we've been talking about career paths, which is really vital and important in this. But, but let's talk a little bit about, you know, society and democracy, right? Is that we have school systems that are obsessed around fact memorization. And yet I'm hard pressed to find a school anywhere in America that teaches kids how to and the importance of fact checking. And, and, you know, you just see it every day in our country, right? You know, it's like nobody, you know, some friends of mine at Stanford did this study that, that looked at can even our best students, you know, like juniors and seniors, the most selective colleges, magna cum laude, can they reliably tell the difference between an article that's factual and something that's not. And their performance on that was terrible. And, and why? Because right, you're generally given material to read by a professor with an endorsement that this must be what's true. And your goal is to read it, absorb it, to a large extent, memorize it, and then say it back in some form on an exam that's pleasing to the TA or the professor, right? That's the essence of school. That nowhere in that process are you ever given something that's completely bogus and, and challenged to say, is this true or not? You know, what, what, what turned out to be instrumental is that you, you show these top, and if, if it's true for the top students at our top schools, think about what it's like for adults across America. I mean, it's, it's just rampant across our country. But the thing that really made clinch the deal is you show somebody anything on a professional-looking website with a credible URL ending in .org with footnotes, and they will assume it's true. So it could be www.greatsuggestionsfordiet.org that says every morning you should go, you, you know, chug you know, a full glass of hydrochloric acid, and you find people... Or, you know, like, <laughs> like we look no further than COVID, right? With some of the hydroxychloroquine, you know, there were these incredibly crazy things put out there. And no one understands it's really important to fact check. And here's how you do it. 
it can be taught. I mean, it's it's a skill, you know, and there are clear, you know, approaches, clear ways to do it. I'd be hard pressed to think of a higher priority for schools in America today than equipping students with great fact checking skills. You know, if somebody's listening, knows of a school that's doing that, let me know. I'm interested. I've not found one. And he's like, well, okay. So if you slough off on things, if, if, if it's all dry academic memorization-based content that has nothing to do with career, if some of the most essential citizenship skills are trampled in the process, if kids' are <clears throat> childhoods are being turned into torture, sleep-derived, you know, constant message, you're not that good, that has consequences for adult world, right? I mean, you can't do 100%. that year in and year out and say everything's going to work out fine. Well, and you bring up an interesting point that I've observed lately with my siblings, with especially teenagers right now in middle and high school, which is as the world, as we get more and more natively digital, as human beings become more and more natively digital, there's an entire skill set of digital critical reasoning that is absolutely essential to functioning as a human. Uh, to give an example, what parent do you know who could successfully navigate a situation like this? I had a friend recently tell me that they're one of their siblings. Uh, he was on TikTok and somehow through the comments with some of his friends, um, you know, he, he had a video that went viral. There were a lot of comments. Well, he connected with this girl who lived in a different state and they started talking and they snapped and they had, you know, they had, they're on Snapchat. They were sharing pictures and chatting and all this. Well, the girl told him, you know, a month into their not even official relationship that she was going to commit suicide if he didn't decide to date her. And what parent out there do you know who would be able to navigate the challenges like that that come with the digital transformation we have without tools like critical reasoning? And, and what I see so often happening as a native digital myself is the parent's solution to whether it's societal problems, relationship problems, what, their kids having differing political opinions, whatever the case might be, is to say, the technology is the problem, shut it off. Instead of how do we equip our kids in school or as parents with the skill set they have got to have to navigate a digital world as a successful human being without encountering or knowing how to deal with mental health challenges, with, with relationship challenges, with being a friend in, when, you, when your friends are virtual and your community is across the globe, like how do you navigate that without your solution just as a parent being, just shut it off. Yep. Just don't engage with that. Let me take your phone. Let me get you offline because that is not the solution. No, it's not, not even close. And it, you know, you've got the parent perspective, but you also have the, this whole new wave of idiocy descending on school boards you know, where, you know, it's, it's really stunning. You know, you know I'll say it, and, and this is obvious to anybody that's a native digital, but not obvious to the native analog. So, so examples, we're going to ban books because somewhere on a dusty book on the library shelf, there are three paragraphs about a sex scene, you know, where, where most elementary school kids have already watched the most explicit porn on their phone or a friend's phone, right? I mean, that's the thing parents don't realize is that, 
that they might take away the devices, but they don't take away the access to the devices. I mean, these kids are resourceful. You, you have this whole wave of we can't possibly challenge kids with thought-provoking content, you know, with, with extreme views. You know, like, like no, it's got to be the most sanitized, boring content because if somebody has an opinion about X, you know, that will immediately make a kid conclude X and blah, blah, blah. And, and I just look at this and I say – what world are you living in, right? I mean, you know, like, and, and we know the answer. They're living in the native analog world. Because when you say to a kid, you're never going to read or hear from a teacher something that challenges your thinking, that might challenge your parents' thinking in a big way, you know, we, we need to embrace that. We need to help kids form their own opinion about it, criticize. You know, even if somebody says, I'll pick two ex extremes, if, if somebody said, we're going to read a book that says America's never made one single mistake in its entire history. Or we're going to read a book that says America is the worst nation in the history of the planet. My take on that is we should be bring it on, right? Let kids read these, you know, extreme. Neither one is makes any sense, but it's still good training, good education to analyze it. What's wrong with their point of view? Did they say anything I agree with? What's wrong with it? Instead, the push is now get that out of their lives. We're just going to take sanitized, boring facts in the dullest of all possible textbooks and expect the kids will leave that. And then when they're on their own with their own device or a friend's device, they won't get sucked into something that none of us want them to get sucked into. And so in many ways, the very important skills we need to equip them with to navigate the digital world, to take advantage of the many opportunities it affords, but also to be able to contend with. I mean, your example is quite powerful. How the heck do you deal with that? Suddenly you've got somebody you're connected to. And that can be, I mean, my gosh, that can be scarring for life for a, for a kid. You know, do you just say, oh, it'll just go away? You know, do we just, you know, like, it's not going away. And so we're not getting the upside and we're leaving our kids completely vulnerable on the downside. And, and I kind of just say, what a stupid approach. You know, but it's, it's real, right? And, and you see this chilling effect of these ever more politicized school board meetings with these parents running around, you know, just spouting the most nonsensical of stuff. And I just want to, like, take a two-by-four to their head and say, wait a minute, wake up. You know, like, we're in the year twenty. 22. <laughs> We're not in the year 1952 when I was born. It was like, you, you need to equip these kids to deal with the world that they're going to live in. And you can't try to push that aside year in and year out when they're in school and then expect once they're out that it'll all go well. Because your kid is as likely as not to get sucked into some cockamamie cult that goes against your very values, right? Like, that doesn't do you any good. And that's just human nature, yeah. right? It's human nature to resist the things that are taught to us. And that's, <laughs> for many kids, the purpose of college. But I could not agree more that when you add the digital world to it, the effects are simply amplified of all of the, both the bad and the good parts of human nature and how we learn and how we choose to interact as a society and the more that parents and educators shut that down instead of working with it. And I love this, that point about fact checking and critical reasoning. I actually, when I was on 
uh, our, you know, our mutual friend, Christopher Lockhead, when I was on his show, this was one of the things we were talking about was the fact that critical reasoning and the ability to detect fallacies and understand what is truth is so, so important. It always has been clearly for society, but the more we become digital humans, the more we're integrated with technology, the more we're going to be leading artificial intelligence and machines in the future. How much more do we have to stick fast to our, our guns and understand as humans what is true? What is not true? How do we uh, how do we make decisions based on information that we're given? And I, if I had to summarize in you know my words, what I see among my peers as the most lacking skill, yet the most important skill that they need, it would be that critical reasoning. Yeah, and you know we're we're just. You know, it's, these issues are coming at us at warp speed, and and so we need responses that move at warp speed. And my fear is our responses are moving at this you know snail's pace, and nothing is going to slow down the things. But I mean, a very specific example is, you know, if I had to take an over under bet on whether in ten years this is possible, I'd bet that this is certainly possible. It's probably even possible in labs today. Is you know you could. Work with AI, you could say, here's a picture of so-and-so. Create for me a completely authentic video showing this person doing X or showing this person saying Y and maybe add some other things around it. And and almost instantly, you get this incredible video of somebody doing the worst things. And, and you think about what that means for a democracy or down to the micro level to a school community. I mean, imagine if somebody creates a video of some shy young kid in middle school doing the most awful graphic things and then spreads it among all the friends. I mean, like, how do, is that going to be possible? You know, yeah, it's absolutely going to be possible. I mean, that's, you know, it's headed our way. What are we doing to anticipate that and prepare for it? And, and the answer is we're banning books. <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, like we, are, we are so stuck in the Salem witch era you know, you know, when we need to be, you know, bringing a real future perspective to things. And, you know, I'd say if, the, if I wanted to footnote it or, or bookend it with some optimism, you know, here it goes, which is everybody has control over what they do, right? I mean, like this, as, as worried as I am about global warming, and I am, you know, the fact is that no matter how much one person does, it's going to take a whole heap of coordinated effort to really change things. The interesting thing here is, right, is that if you, you're a parent listening to this, you're a student listening to this, you're a teacher, you know, whatever, whoever you are, take it into your own hands. You know, like if this makes some sense to you, just say, okay, I'm not doing the same old, same old. You're like, and you know, the, the kids that do that are going to be in great shape relative to everybody else. And so, I don't know, you like, I think that's a, a kind of ultimately an aspect of life I really appreciate is that those who see things clearly, they recognize that with a degree of ambiguity, they can create a great path forward, that they will feel more purpose in doing it, and they will learn so much, and that will likely lead to very good career outcomes. Go for it, right? I mean, go, you know, like, you don't have to wait around for your school district or your state bureaucracy of education or the U.S. De the incredibly inept U.S. Department of Education. You don't have to wait for them. Just do it, right? And, and 
recognize that the math on college is really unfavorable now. You know, it's, it's you know, most most of the people who churn through that process end up on the short end of the financial. That, that, that's what I love, right? The, the Georgetown studies that come out regularly, always these studies come from education PhDs that say that the college degree is still an incredibly great investment. And the story two columns over is the epidemic of student loan debt laying our 43 million Americans, putting them on their back. And, and I'm always saying, well, if this college degree is worth $450,000 more of lifetime earnings, why are 43 million Americans screwed? And, you know, that's just it. You know, it's like the, the reality is most people come out on the short end of the stick of this these days. And you don't have to. That was, a, I love that as a closing note, because you're basically saying, screw the system, pick up your pick up your own tasks, your own skills. We have control over what we do and and go forward. And and just at least what I, you know, what I am taking away from this conversation is we as humans have so much power to create, to do, to learn, to be innovative. We just have to tap we have to tap into that potential and not let all these systems we've built for ourselves the, this bureaucracy, these systems that that really are just barriers to reaching the the parts of life that we enjoy or the places we would thrive or the careers that we would enjoy the most. Get those barriers out of our way and we we can reach that full human potential as long as we're willing to say, this is my responsibility, not the responsibility of the school or the college or my parents or my teachers to tell me what to do. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's to the parents listening, it's, it's so many will tell me, you know, it fall in the fall, they'll tell me all the colleges they're applying to and how we did everything right. And we took all these AP courses and we did all this test prep and we did this and we did that. And then, then there's a wave of them in the spring that says we did everything right. And we didn't get to, into any of our first choice colleges. And, and I always sort of say, did you apply to any colleges that take both you and your child? They say, no, I mean, it's just, they just take my child. I said, well, that's the problem because this was clearly a team effort. You need to look for some colleges that take both of you. But, you know, the, the reality is it's like this is where things get set up for, for really, I think, calamitous outcomes is this drumbeat year in and year out from parents saying you've got to go to, you know, I'll stick with your North Carolina. You've got to go to Duke. If you don't go to Duke, you know, blah, 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 blah. The bottom will fall out and everything else. And you can do everything on paper right in high school. And, and any of these admissions officers will tell you, we could fill up our entering class 10 times over with kids that look like they've done everything right. We're actually kind of looking for real kids. And, and we can sort of generally see through the micromanaged kid who's kind of done things inauthentically just because the parents push them to do it. And so I would say, like, are you, which approach is going to give you a better relationship with your child? Find things you love to do and do them or do what the system tells you to do to be one more kid in an almost endless stack of applications who also did the same thing. And you might just find that it works out better on the college front if that's what you're obsessed with. But Hey, there's this bonus out there, which is you just might find a kid who's often running in life, knowing how to learn how to learn, knowing they can create their own career path, doing meaningful things that they love and just say like, hey, I live in a world where I can learn anything I want on my own. Why would I spend three hundred thousand dollars 
to sit through a bunch of boring classes. <laughs> like, I could do better than that. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, yeah, maybe, just maybe you can. Thank you for that, Ted. This has been an amazing conversation. I have enjoyed every minute of it, and you're welcome back anytime. Let's, let's make the future of education actually work by asking these really hard questions. I, awesome. I so appreciate your time. Well, thanks for all you're doing. I love your work and your focus, and uh, you are a point of inspiration for me. So I'm, I'm grateful to spend time with you and would love to come back. Well, there you have it. A conversation about the future of school with a foremost thought leader on the topic. I hope that your brain was sparked to think creatively about how we can create a positive education future for our students, for our grandkids, and for the generations that go beyond us. I know I'm already thinking about it as a Gen Zer, and I, I know you must be as well. I would love to see this topic begin to change how we uh, how we build communities around education. So if your interest was sparked, then check out what school could be. Just go to whatschoolcouldbe.org, check out Ted's book, and also check out the community of people, of like-minded people who are changing the future of education. And as always, you can reach out to me at any time to talk about education, about Gen Z, about recruiting Gen Z, and also helping our students succeed. Thanks for listening to the Native Digital, Native Analog Show. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd really appreciate it if you would subscribe, leave a rating and review, and tell your friends. If you're looking to connect and talk more about attracting and retaining Native Digitals, you can reach me at hannahgwilliams.com. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time.